0: N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash W-T-F All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck nicks? What's happening before I get too caught up? uh, My guest today is Martha Kelly, comedian uh, and also a regular on the show baskets. With Galifianicotopoulos, Zach Galifianicotopoulos, Zach Galifianakis, yes, Martha Kelly will be here today. I'm Mark Maron, this is my podcast, WTF. We've been going strong for how long now? A lot of episodes. When did we start this? How far back was it? Was it 2009? Wow that's a long time man it's been going i gotta be honest with you everything changes tomorrow for everybody in this country in a significant way and i will say this that uh my life changed dramatically and for the better during the obama administration it wasn't um because of obama but i feel like we both had uh, an, an incredible arc during those years uh, i was privileged enough to speak to the president here in the garage that was a, a definite high point but uh tomorrow the the tone of culture officially changes um, so a few of you may be thrilled and excited i imagine just as many are uh terrified and feeling uh hopeless and then I imagine uh, there's a few people that are uh, all right. Uh, I I did what uh, I thought I had to do. I I hope you uh, I hope this works out. But uh, the one thing I knew about Obama was not a lot, but uh, you know that he was just there doing his job. I didn't he didn't have to bother me every day. Uh, I didn't have to hear from him every day. Uh, he didn't have to uh, uh, you know check in. With the world uh, in in uh, a way that would uh, make everybody wonder if everything's okay today, so that's going to be a little taxing. Personally, yeah, my brain you know, over the last several years has gotten a little spoiled in that uh, you know I, I things were okay. I thought that the country was being managed okay, and uh, I was feeling okay. But uh, what I'm learning now is I have a natural uh, disposition towards, uh, you know somehow I could keep my own personal uh, anxiety and panic at bay because all evidence was uh, indicating that things were okay but boy my brain just is like you know when there's something that I see is terrifying or hopeless or unresolvable or depressing and it's real and it's big and it's right in front of me my brain is just sort of like ah well that looks like home now finally a reason. To, to be miserable and anxious and hopeless. But this is a, here's an upbeat thing, quickly. For those of you who have been following last week's show, when I told you about that letter I got from that kid I knew, Ted, and I told you about how he punched me in the stomach after I sang a song for his girlfriend as a kid, and he wrote back a uh, subject line, sorry I punched you. Hey, Mark, oh my God, listen to yesterday's podcast. The song, seriously blocked memory. What can I say? I would like to make it up to you if possible. Let's talk sometime. Come visit New Mexico early to mid-April before your Boulder show if you can. I'll buy you dinner and we can catch up on life. I know the power of the grudge. Best. Ted. Yeah, the power of the grudge. Uh, yeah. That might be a theme next few years. So, uh, Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all my upcoming tour dates. I will be in Tallahassee on Tuesday night. I will be doing some sort of, uh, uh, I think it's part of a festival there. Um, I've never been there. I'm excited. I think we've sold about 700 some odd tickets, but come, I think there's more seats for you. I believe it might be even a 1,200 seat situation. 700's fine with me. That's January 24th. That is Tuesday. Next week, Tallahassee at the Ruby Diamond Concert Hall. Got a surprise for you today. Uh, Dan Pashman. I've had him on the show a few times. He uh, has a podcast called The Sporkful. Uh, He was with me back in the day when I started broadcasting on radio. Uh, We go back. We have a uh, a nice al dente dynamic, but not really. He's a he's a a, a softy and a, a bright guy, and and I I've always enjoyed his laugh, but I also like busting his balls. But uh, to tell you why he's here, really, he was in town doing some other stuff. But he was he's the biggest Springsteen fan I know. All right, like his jersey, full on, all in Springsteen guy, and I could have asked for counsel before i talked to the boss but i did not i could have i could have reached out to dan but i didn't want to get into the mire of the springsteen fan head but i did want to do some uh talk about it after so i had dan over when he was in town for a bit and we talked about that among other stuff so this is me and pashman uh breaking down my springsteen experience from his point of view me and pashman here we go Here you go. I watched that um, four-hour-long uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers doc. Oh great.
1: That sounds great. Two and a half hours too long.
0: No, it's great. I was <laughs> I was crying at parts. Really? Yeah. Oh, just listening to the songs. Like he's my Springsteen. Really? A little bit.
1: I guess because he's like California guy. No, or guy. no.
0: I mean, I love Bruce, uh, but like in terms of listening to music, I think that their place in American culture on some level is a little similar. The uh, I don't think Tom Petty's really dark, you know, or, or that exploratory, but I, I think that as American songwriters and bands, the Heartbreakers and the Eat Band, are, you know, they they had common trajectories.
1: I guess, but I, I think what you said is right. I, mean, I just felt like there's not a whole lot of emotional depth to his music. It sort of feels like he decided 40 years ago that he was going to play rock and roll, and I get that there's some nobility to just being like, I'm going to get really good at doing this one thing. I'm going to do it forever. And that's cool. He's made some great All songs, right. but we, like... You
0: know, you know, see, like, there's a slight condescension. <laughs> there's a couple of things you said quickly with a sort of chipper confidence that, you know, they they didn't fall into the right slots in my brain. Okay. Like, I if I... If I I'm not wrong. <laughs> uh, you're basically implying that Tom Petty's been doing the same thing for 40 years and he's just got this thing he does and it doesn't change much. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad that he found his thing.
1: Do you disagree with that?
0: Yes. They're like they you know he does work within popular music. He likes to write pop songs and he likes to write well-constructed songs. But his band, The Heartbreakers, is one of the best bands that that's ever played rock and roll, really. Um, you know, I was just watching a, the new version uh, the new Blu-ray of The Last Waltz last night with the band. Right. How, how do you feel about the band?
1: I like the band.
0: Okay. Well, you know, But
1: I also I, think that if the band had been around for 40 years, I I think that they would have uh run out of creative steam i think part of the reason why the band holds up for so long is because they stopped
0: but also because of the space they were able to create between the instruments and the sort of time they gave the music and also you know whatever you know their muses were sourcing in terms of american music and folk tradition uh they were they were just a great band and they they weren't you know overworking it there was an ease to it all but um but when I view you know, Petty through that, I think a lot of his songs are about yearning. I think there is darkness in his songs. I think that a lot of them are about, about love, and a lot of them are about um, you know, not really knowing. I understand that there is a few albums there you might not have liked, but um, very comforting and uh, provocative music to me, Mr. Petty. And I'm always happy that he's around. What are you That's trying, what, that. What
1: are you trying to get him on the show now? No,
0: I'm not. This is I'm not using you. Why would I You think like great dance here? Finally, I can do a subtle plea to get Tom Petty on. But I, you know, I almost called you uh, as I was heading to New Jersey because look, do not misunderstand me. I love Bruce Springsteen. I I I, I, I listen to his records over and over, but I was I'm not a fanatic Bruce Springsteen guy. And I had to go through, you know, a sort of complete reevaluation of his stuff and re-listen to a lot of it before I talked to him. It's really better that I wasn't like you. Uh, and I, I didn't say that with any stink to it <laughs> going into the interview. Well,
1: I feel the same way in the other direction, Mark.
0: Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, could you imagine yourself with uh, you know, what if uh, Bruce came on the Sporkful?
1: I mean, be you wouldn't be able to talk. Yeah, I would need a few minutes to collect myself.
0: (laughs) But my point being, and I'm not insecure about it, but uh, I was going to call you, and then I realized, like, why am I going to call Bruce Springsteen Fanatic before I go talk to him? I know how I want to talk to him. I had an hour. You listened to it. Yeah. And?
1: I thought you did a great job. Good. I thought your interview was excellent. I thought you guys really connected. It was. That's important. Absolutely. Well, that's a huge part of what your show's about, and- um, I thought it felt like even though some of the topics that you talked about he's talked about in other interviews, there was a different tone to it because yeah. of the style of interview that you do that it right. felt more like a conversation. Right. Less like a one a one way street of I ask a question and then you provide an answer. Yeah. So that gave it sort of a different air to it. <clears> right.
0: There was a there was about twenty five minutes in where it just clicked into something else. Yeah. It became a personal thing. Like I could feel it.
1: What I liked most about it, I mean I felt Look, I'm sure that you have, you're gonna, you are going know, when the story of WTF is written, like you'll have other shows, the Obama show or whatever, that will have gotten more listens. And people, I'm sure people have many different opinions about what their personal favorite WTF yeah. guest ever, sure. who, who that is. But I think that this was the quintessential WTF episode. Really? Yes. Because at its core, yeah. as I hear, like what this show is about is uh, exploring a person's background and journey. Yeah. And then connecting that to their art. Mhm. The central question of this show is like what happened to you? <laughs> what and what did you experience yeah. in your life yeah. personally and professionally yeah. that led you not only to be the person that you are but to create the art that you create. Okay. And to make and to draw connections between personal experience and artistic expression.
0: And my experience.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> right.
0: Please see me while I talk
1: to you. <laughs> but I mean, b- because you, you're like, part yeah. of what brings that out is your connection with your guests. Yeah. And you're, and you're often, you are often talking, especially in your open monolo- opening yeah. monologues, about your own uh, issues and making that but, same connection.
0: But it was funny with Bruce because I was like, you know, I got to, I got to. Like, my outside of listening to all the music, knowing that I wasn't really going to talk about it. And thank God I read enough of the book to sort of get a sense of him personally, because I don't always realize going into these things that, you know, how much he's talked publicly or how much his fans know, but there is a, a definite sort of group of Springsteen fans that are like, I've, I've listened to everything. I've seen everything. I've read everything. Like, he's got those people. And I knew that, and I always know that going into a big artist. But, like, I really needed to see if i could you know talk to him as a person and it took a little while it took like 20 minutes for me like i knew when i started talking to him i didn't waste any time you know getting into the meat of things right and i don't know that he was expecting it but i felt right away because i am genetically new jersey and i brought that up yeah but just right away for some reason when i said there's a lot going on in the house cuz of christmas he goes correct <laughs> i was like I'm in, in a way, (laughs) like that's all like that. That correct was hilarious to me.
1: What was it about his demeanor that switched at a certain point that that sent you the signal like we've we've crossed over from like? Well, there was a couple of moments, right? When
0: when I related to him as a performer, that was one thing, and then that moment where I'm like, I basically say like, yeah, I, I you know, it's like you know, off stage in my emotional life. You know, I, I I have a hard time trusting anyone. He goes, of course you do. Right. That moment I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we, you know, we're talking like a couple of guys now. Right. Right? Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was just so damn eloquent. Yeah. And thoughtful. Yeah. And the reason why he's the quintessential w- WTF guest in my mind is that he drew connections between personal struggle and and artistic expression more explicitly than any other guest. Yeah. I, I thought when he talked about, you know, these things happen to you growing up and it burns and burns, but if you can take that fire and point it in the right direction, it becomes a powerful weapon. Yeah. and, and where he, he said
0: that? Yeah. Oh, that's pretty good. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I got to listen to this you should, you
1: should, <laughs> <laughs> And the other part that he said was, you know, um, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the effect of, you don't become a rock and roll star if you had a nice placid upbringing. Right. You know, you need chaos and tumult. Yeah. That s- single s- sentiment is the underlying assumption of this entire show and of your right. ho- your whole approach to your own creative evolution.
0: Yeah. And in art in general. I mean, I I don't want to say that's always the case because, you know, people get upset. You know, like, I feel okay and I'm trying to draw. You know, <laughs> I, I don't... <laughs> But, but, you know, I don't want to alienate those people, but I,
1: (laughs) yeah, I'm sure that didn't come across (laughs) as condescending to them at all. Go on.
0: (laughs) No, but I mean, like, I think that's true. I I think there's something about, you know, the, the kind of like lifelong broken heart or the, you know, the, the sort of fragmentation of your emotional being from an age before, you know, you had any control over that, that does lead to, uh, finding relief and expression. I mean I, I I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way and it's obviously more complicated but I appreciate uh, the the uh, the validation from a true Bruce Springsteen fan.
1: No, you did a great job. How many
0: times have you seen him?
1: Live? Yeah. Uh I I haven't I'm not the kind I'm not so hardcore that I have an exact count. I would like estimate, 100? No, 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 no. I would say like 20. Yeah. 20 times. First time ever was on the Born in the USA tour in Giant Stadium in New Jersey when I was 8 years old. No kidding. Um, Who do,
0: Your dad took you? My
1: parents took me, all four of us went My yeah. brother was five, yeah. we didn't stay till the end right. Which I was very upset you want to, about You did
0: not want, want to get past the traffic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go, we can get
1: out right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But you know, the last time I was here with you I, I was a little bit, I guess a little down on Bruce Because I had seen him and, and it wasn't a great concert experience And I sort of talked about how I felt like Maybe he he was creatively spinning his wheels And you defended him very well and then subsequent to that conversation we had I saw him again in yeah. Brooklyn and it was a fantastic show and I was like riding the high of that show for years hey, you, you
0: know a job is a job sometimes
1: well I, I don't even know <laughs> to what degree it was his fault that the first earlier show wasn't as good. It was shorter, and the set list just didn't happen to connect with me quite as well, but it was also partly, like, I didn't have great seats. The people around me weren't that into it, and it happened to be a night that, like, I was uh, very distracted with work. The yeah. friend I was with had just had a death in her family, and she wasn't exactly, like, ready to party.
0: And you are you're, you're going to lay that on Bruce. Yeah. You, you walk out of that situation yeah. and without was... doing the math and working the angles, right? like, <laughs> wow, Bruce didn't pull me out of this shit situation right? yeah. I'm in.
1: I know. It must be his fault. Yeah. yeah. He yeah. must have lost a step. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we expect a lot out of these people.
1: Yeah. But but there's one thing that you said in the setup to your interview with Bruce that I want to double back on. Mm-hmm. Because you said something when you were describing kind of coming into the studio and before Bruce came. Yeah. And then you glossed right over it. And this, to me, I was, this was like a record scratch moment for me.
0: Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You want me... you need some uh, gaps filled
1: in? <laughs> Did you say that Bruce had cronuts?
0: Yeah, there some <laughs> 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 <They> were some cronuts. <laughs>
1: but they were... <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, go back. Yeah. <laughs> let, let me. I, I'll, I'll give you. Well, here was the situation. So we get there, and there's a you know the guy who let us in. The publicist was there waiting, um, and she was nice. And you know it's on his property, and um, a carpenter let us in and, and helped us plug in and set up. And he, we were just there in the studio for a while. And she said, "Well, you know, we're you know you're free to make a coffee. There was a kitchen." to in the studio uh, uh building you know with a coffee maker and there were cronuts there and like and when she brought up the cronuts i was like no, i never had one but it, it, to be honest with you they were um they were in a box they were individually wrapped so it looked like the kind of thing you get as a gift mm. do you know what i mean in, like, the, the, like
1: in plastic bags right, like right. like mass produced
0: perhaps Uh, They may be from a a valid cronut maker, but it was definitely a gift box type of thing.
1: Was there like a a brand name or a bakery or anything written on the box?
0: Probably. What do you want from me? I had other things (laughs) on my mind. I I, I had to interview Bruce Springsteen in 10 minutes. I wasn't going to be like, I'm going to make note. (laughs) <laughs> that uh, I didn't love this cronut, and if this is the best they can be, right. I'm, I'm, I'm not on board.
1: I'm just very curious to know what kind of cronuts uh, Bruce has in his studio.
0: I don't think that Bruce put them there personally, and I, my belief is that they got him up at the house as a gift. A Christmas, you know, gift box. Right, right. And they uh, and he
1: said, "Get these out of here. They're gonna make me fat." P-
0: probably. Right. Like he seems to be a little weight conscious. Yeah. They were like, "What should I do with them?" It's like, "Well, we got people coming. There's a guy. Let's just put them down there. Maybe they'll eat them." Right. There's a place here that can't keep the cronuts in stock. Like, there's a new bakery open down the street. Very expensive, and they're known for the cronuts, I believe, but uh, I've never had one because they're never there. Right. Now, I imagine you've probably done one or two shows on the Cronut.
1: I did interview. <laughs> it was a month-long series. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> on the Sporkful folks. Yeah. yeah. Look up Cronut yeah. 1,
0: 2, and 3.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. What? What did you do? We're going to submit it for
0: a Peabody. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yeah. You'll probably get it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get one. I talked to the fucking president. <laughs> but your Cronut one will probably yeah. Yeah, burst through.
1: Right, right. I did interview Dominique Ansell, who's the sort of uh, famous fancy baker who invented the cronut. So technically speaking, like he is like the only quote unquote real cronut is at his bakery. Yeah. Where's that? In Manhattan. Uh-huh. Uh, he's very precious about it. He I, I had an interview scheduled with him and he still wouldn't let me have a cronut. Like- that one, that the bakery, could just put one aside for me in the morning, and I could pick it up.
0: You went to the bakery to interview him. It was a location. I interviewed interview? him
1: at a live show, but I said before I interview him, I'd like to eat a cronut so I can talk about the experience. You do live shows in front of people? Yeah. How do they go? They go really well. Where do you do them? Uh, some at the uh, WNYC performance space called the Green Space. I did one at the the Bell House in Brooklyn. Yeah, oh, going to do some new ones. Sell yeah. that out? Yeah. Good for you. Yeah, the, the Bell House. Uh, we had uh, John Hodgman came to the Bell House. So that helped because yeah. I'm sure more people were coming to see him than me. But, yeah, the li- I mean, like, I would love to do more live shows. Uh, I, it's like, I can't, you know, it, it gives me, like, the tiniest taste. I mean, I can't even imagine, like, what it must be like for you to, like, because I'm sure you're so much better at it, and I know that you are, and like going okay, on the road... I'm and glad you be- added that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you think that. Dedicating half my life to doing yeah. live performance. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you conceded that, that maybe I might be a little more adept at it than you.
1: You are, but it, it, it has given me a tiny insight into... Or like a different appreciation for what you do. Yeah. Uh Because I do find that I'm... i when I'm up on stage, I'm interviewing someone. I'm so highly attuned to the vibe I'm getting from the crowd. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, which I think is mostly probably a strength because I, but do
0: you feel like you want to get laughs or you just feel the crowd?
1: I do feel, um, I do always perceive that the audience is getting impatient.
0: Right. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
1: Often before they really are. Um, but I guess it, how do you know it all? I, I, maybe I don't. Maybe I'm wrong half the time.
0: I mean, they're there to see a guy talk about food with people. I mean, what what, what do you think? Like, God, get to the payoff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just like if we end up on a certain topic for too long, or, oh, right. or an answer goes on for too long, and I feel when like you feel, well, you, so you're actually getting like I'm actually getting tired of this. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they right, they right. must be. You know, and sometimes after the fact, I'll talk to people, and they will be like, "Oh, that part was so interesting," and I'm like, "Like my first question oh, for people God. when I finish is like, yeah. did that go on too long?" But I, I think it probably makes for better live shows because, you know, always leave them wanting more. Sure. Um, no, no, I, th- I but... think
0: that's true. But, you know, and we don't know what people are thinking. A lot of times they're just listening and they're having the experience and they're, you're not expected to be doing a rock show or right. a comedy show. And they know the the fans of the sporkful are there because they know the show and they, you know, they're there to listen. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: Anyway, on stage, I interviewed the creator of the Krona and he would not give me a Cronut ahead of time to eat to prepare for the interview. He told me I had to go wait in line with all the tourists at 6 o'clock in the morning. Really? Yes.
0: Now, see that? And he told you that in front of people?
1: No, his people told me that ahead of time. Really?
0: And you didn't bring that up?
1: I did. Yeah. I didn't do it in, a, in, a, in an especially aggressive or accusatory way, but what I did is I had a friend of mine... Um, Who's a pastry chef? Take the, cr- the modified cronut recipe in his cookbook and make them, and then I presented those to him on stage. Oh, good! You like that? Yeah. And uh, and was like, okay, I can't get a cronut from you. That, I guess I guess this is what I'm going to experience—is my cronut experience?
0: Yeah. And what do you
1: say? Uh, he ate it and he said, ah, "It's a little doughy, but it's pretty good." Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Fuck that guy. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? It's like, I'm not going to give that guy a cronut. I'm going to do his radio show and talk about my cronuts. But basically he was saying like, I don't need him. Right. So what? He he
1: was very nice to me personally. Give me the
0: lowdown on the cronut because I find that I barely give a shit.
1: Um... Yeah, I, I honestly like it's a block from my office. If I cared that much, I could go too. But it's I, what
0: it's a, cr- a croissant pressed into a donut.
1: It's a co- it's a hybrid croissant donut. You take a you take croissant dough, which is like lighter and oh, flaky. So it's all flaky and buttery. Right, but it's it's layered. It's rolled very thin sure. and folded many times. So You get many many very thin delicate layers, yeah, I get and then they add a cream filling inside. But
0: uh, but to me, oh, there's a cream filling mm-hmm. involved and a
1: frosting on top. Yeah,
0: maybe that's why I didn't like the ones that I had over there because, like for me, a lot of times the. Uh, the really thin, flaky business. You know, that texture to me, it just means like, well, there's a lot of air here where shit could have been. <laughs> There's, there's a lot of space that could have been filled with some doughy good stuff. Right.
1: Well, you know what you can do in that case? Just take your hand and flatten it.
0: Yeah, that might be better. <laughs> but I sort of like, I have that like with phyllo dough stuff. I'm like, yeah, it's an interesting texture, but it could be a little more, you know, it's not as satisfying as right. I might want it to be.
1: Have you considered putting another cronut inside the holes of this cronut? Yeah,
0: there you go. You're, you're It would be a, a croducken, like a... <laughs> You and your fucking ideas of cramming other shit right. into other shit. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, a lot of times, simple food is is the best. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: like, like uh, you know, like Tom Petty. Nice and simple.
0: Wow, you brought it all around. Are you closing <laughs> this? Are you wrapping?
1: <laughs> is that a wrap? Yeah, it's nice fun. to see you. It was fun. You Are too, you going to go eat? Uh, yeah. I think I am going to go eat. Really? I was thinking of getting some sushi, maybe. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk about it. (laughs) See you later. Later, buddy.
0: Always nice to see Mr. Pashman. We go back at this point. It's funny. Yeah. As like, you know, I have a couple go backs like, you know, back in the day with Dan. And then there's another there's back back in the day. I've got like three back in the days now. There's back in the day, back, back in the day, back, back, back in the day. Got to start making sure I make that clear. Uh, you know, look, if politics has you down, folks, you can listen to Dan's latest episode of the sporkful, which is about an election, but it's a workplace election to pick a new office coffee. I guarantee it will make you a lot less angry than the last election. So that's, uh, that's Dan go check out the sporkful. Um, before I talk to Martha Kelly, I would like to, uh, to say that I met Martha a while back. Martha is, um on baskets with Zach Gallif and noodles, uh, which is coming back tonight. But, uh, but uh, it was uh, you know, it, it's I, there are so many people on this show that I, I really didn't know at all. And I have assumptions about her. I think I know things. I don't. Uh, Martha was one of those. And it was a, uh, it was uh, lovely to talk to her. As I said before, she's uh, tonight. You can see her on baskets. She's a regular on that show with Zach Gallif and Nicolopoulos. Um, it's on FX tonight at 10 PM and it's a uh, new episodes every Thursday night. This is me and Martha Kelly. Your demeanor is partially unconscious.
2: Yeah, it's just my uh, how I talk.
0: Yeah, but what's going on inside? What's going on inside, Martha? (laughs) I mean, like I I know.
2: One thing is uh, antidepressants are going on inside. How long's that
0: been going on for?
2: For a few years, Um, I mean, I took them a couple times for a short term period in my early 20s, Mm -hmm. and then I didn't wanna, um, and then I started drinking a lot and, booze. Uh, yeah, and you, you're not supposed to drink on them, and I chose booze. Yeah, um, which I still think was the right choice at the time. <laughs>
0: so you you said uh, this medicine that they're prescribing me that I can't feel tangibly. Yeah. Not working.
2: Not 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 worth giving up um, the love of my life, beer, at the time.
0: Beer. Yeah. So you're beer drunk
2: yeah just because I cause with beer, you can kind of gauge where you are drunk wise, and I hated the spins and throwing up. so I would you know m- for all, for a good amount of time, I could you know stop before that happened, just get drunk enough to not,
0: yeah. And with beer, you sick. can kind of make a day of it,
2: yes. and you can make a <laughs> meal of it because that's what I would do at the end is not eat dinner and just drink beer to save money and calories, because right. it has a lot of calories. Sure, so, it
0: sounds like you had a really good plan going.
2: I really, um, for a <laughs> while it seemed like a great plan. And uh, yeah, but then when I quit drinking, it was a few years before I um, was willing to consider antidepressants again. I just didn't want to need something to make me feel normal. But um, after long, after a few really severe periods of wanting to kill myself and feeling yeah. like I just barely hung on, yeah, it's like this isn't really living,
0: right? Well, it seems like we've we've now got a uh, a good outline for the conversation.
2: Um, I'm sure, or a good a good uh, indicator that people are going to turn off their computer. Uh, no, before
0: that, that is not true. <laughs> But we'll the funny see. thing is, is that like, I remember meeting you like decades ago. I can't even remember where we first met, but I mean, I feel like, so you you grew up in Torrance, which is outside of Los Angeles, correct? Is that that yeah, one? Yeah,
2: it's about 22 miles south of LA. I know that um, Marky Mark's character in Boogie Nights is from Torrance. Right. It's not my favorite city. I'll put it that way.
0: Do you have brothers and sisters?
2: I have a twin sister and an older brother. Twin
0: sister? Yeah, Everybody? Frater-
2: fraternal, not identical.
0: Oh, so you, you don't look exactly like each other, but you no. know each other pretty well. Yes. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah. we shared a room until we were 20 when we both went off to different universities.
0: And what, what, what was your dad doing and, and your family doing in Torrance?
2: My dad was an um, elementary school principal and my mom was an elementary school teacher.
0: The Same school, no, oh, schools. they don't let that happen, I guess. Maybe I guess. they do. So, you grew up with elementary school educators as yes. parents, yeah, and a twin sister. Now, because when did you start doing comedy? Um, how old were you?
2: I was right before my 30th birthday, so you I,
0: waited a while.
2: I tried an open mic at the Laugh Factory about once a year, starting when I was 25, but I the very first time I did it, it went well and I went back the next week thinking I have to do all new material and I did and it, it was terrible and then it took me a year to recover and I did that once a year bombing.
0: Once? Bombing yeah. once or twice? And then a take- year.
2: Yeah, and then it'd take a long time to go back. Um, so, yeah.
0: all right, so between the ages, so you, you you go to junior college and what's the plan? Were you feeling depression? Were you getting shit faced then?
2: I wasn't drinking a lot. I was smoking pot whenever yeah. I could. Um, yeah. And uh, I was an English major. I still haven't graduated. I need like eight units to get my bachelor's degree.
0: Is that something you're thinking about doing?
2: Yeah, just because I went in 2013. I went back to my school for one quarter. And it was that was when I wasn't on antidepressants. And so it took a bad turn. But before it took a bad turn, it was so fun to be back in school. So I this loved was it. three years ago. Yeah.
0: After a, you know, what, 15, 20 year hiatus?
2: Yeah, it was over 20 years since I had left. It's just more fun to go to school when you're in your 40s. When you're an old lady because you don't have any of the pressure to figure out what you're going to do with your life. You already know (laughs) that
0: most of it's done already.
2: Yeah, your life is, (laughs) a lot of it is behind you. And you also know that there isn't one. I think I felt in my twenties, I think some people feel this way, where like there's one right door for you to pick to for your career and for what you do with your life and you have to pick it soon and if you make the wrong choice you'll you'll ruin your whole life. And that's not actually what It's not true though, right? No.
0: Not at all. Not for me. I didn't I didn't know there were all I saw was a lot of doors. Yeah. A lot of hallways. Like I couldn't get out of the hallway. Right, <laughs> It's very exhausting, the, yeah. the door, the potential door possibilities. Right. So you were studying English in junior college. Was that in Torrance?
2: Yeah, El Camino College. Nice. I loved it. I hated high school, but I loved junior college because there was none of the social, the forced social um
0: Right, because it's a commuter stuff. campus, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just people that want to learn
2: yeah. whatever. And really good teachers. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, because at the junior college level, they don't have to do research to keep their job. So it's just people who love teaching and they're really good at it. Really? Yeah, it was really fun.
0: Did you ever think about teaching?
2: Um, I'm too self-conscious and not and don't have enough alpha to uh, lead a class of young people. <laughs> I taught defensive driving like three times when I lived in Austin and was really bad at it and... Um. That, yeah. Defensive driving. Yeah. Comedy. Def- they call it comedy. Defensive oh, that's driving. right.
0: When you got uh, when you got uh, a ticket. Yeah. The improv used to do that.
2: Yeah. Right? And on paper, for for especially for an alcoholic comedian, it sounds like a good deal because you just <laughs> you think I'll just work a couple days a week. Yeah. Make enough money to just pay my rent and get by, and then do comedy the rest of the time. Right. But I was so bad at it.
0: Were you hungover?
2: Hungover, late, really shy and uncomfortable, and people were just like, "Get me fuck, get me out of here." Really,
0: but I I always wondered about that because I knew the comics did this, but I, for some reason, I'm picturing you in the actual car doing it, but that's not what it was. You had like there was a a course layout, yeah, and the idea was like, it's not going to be, it'll be a little more painless,
2: yeah, with funny
0: people teaching.
2: Yeah, that's what, that's what they say. And then um, you also get free pizza. That was a big, for me in my 30s, free pizza was a, a huge selling point for So you anything. get a little bit
0: of money and free yeah. pizza. Yeah. As a comic to teach defensive driving. Was it for yeah. the improv?
2: No, it was for Cap City sure. in Austin.
0: Yeah, I know that club. The yeah. warehouse size club. But before we get there, I want to know how, what how, what happened? What was the disaster in junior college? How did you not finish? Where did well, you go? It
2: wasn't that I didn't finish junior college. I took two years yeah. and then um, transferred to a four year school to UC Davis.
0: Oh, that's, I've been there. And uh, that's sort of in the middle of this, it's up there.
2: Yeah, it's like yeah. half an hour outside of Sacramento. But
0: like the whole town is the college, right? Right. Yeah.
2: Um, and, uh, when I went, it was one of the easier UC schools to get into. That's why I picked it. Partly because it was far away from home and partly yeah. because it was it was way harder to get into like Berkeley or UCLA. Right. But now Davis is much harder to get into, but they have a really cool thing where if you went there when you were young and you left on good terms, you can go back any time under the same requirements as when you left. So my... Graduation requirements are much easier than what people who are um getting a bachelor's in English at Davis have to do now. Right. But I can still go back and just finish under the old requirements no matter what. And just automatically get back in because I left without having killed anyone or, you know, having any trouble, <laughs> except I got I had bad grades. I get I got kicked out twice for bad grades and went back to summer school and then Got back in, and it's. I was very depressed, and I wouldn't, um, didn't know it, didn't know that's what was wrong. What was yeah. the
0: feeling? you just couldn't engage? You want to get out of bed? You didn't,
2: yeah, not, yeah, not, not, uh,
0: friends, no friends.
2: I had friends, uh, in the dorms the first year I went to Davis, and and I just that's, I drank a good amount, a great. And it was a great time, uh, the drinking (laughs) and smoking pot. But um, I just had like depression and then some um, issues with social like friendships where sort of approaching the area of people with borderline personality disorder where it was hard for me to, there'd be a honeymoon period with people. And then I would just be, if someone hurt my feelings or disappointed me, I'd be like, I never should have been friends with them in the first place. Just kind of real extreme back and forth with people.
0: Do you think you had borderline?
2: I think that I had... Because um,
0: that can go away, I hear. Like if you, if you like, it's one of those things that's very hard to treat, but it can adjust its way sort of into a uh, manageable zone.
2: I definitely ha feel like I had um tendencies towards that. yeah, I don't think I was all the way into having a full-on personality disorder because right. um I probably wouldn't have been able to stick with my therapist so long if i if I had been too far into it
0: right right because you you would have been like manipulating them or onto them or or just them.
2: or just ending the relationship if something happened that hurt my feelings, you know. But like when I first started I've been seeing the same person off and on um since I was like 23 Still? Yes. Yeah. When I when I've moved away, I haven't um seen her like when I lived in Texas cuz she's here. Yeah. Um and coincidentally that's when I my drinking went from weekends to every day. So I wasn't in therapy when I was in dr- Texas? Yeah, and drinking alcoholically.
0: So you knew, like, so you were having trouble in school, you got kicked out, and you knew, you you didn't know at that time that you had borderline tendencies, you just thought no. you were, it's hard, It's like such a hard, I guess it's not that, like, nebulous. I mean, there are definitely characteristics of it, but I, I would think, because yeah. I mean, I, I, I know I had similar things, but, like, I had attachment issues, though. Like, I'd get very attached to people, like, one friend, yeah. and then if they would, you know, I'd get very upset if uh, yeah. they didn't want to hang out or they that kind of stuff. but
2: I am, I've am i had some of that, too. But um, partly doing comedy helped because when you start doing stand-up, if you're not... You can even be kind of an asshole. If you're not a total asshole, you just very quickly have a bunch of friends that are really fun to hang out with.
0: Yeah, because they're all gypsies and rogues and right. mentally <laughs> fucked up.
2: Yeah, and a lot of... People who enjoyed drinking, which I did, so it was fun and easy to all of a sudden have a, real, a lot of friends, you know.
0: But why? Why did you do like? Because I, I, all right. So, so this, so the Davis situation. So then you go back home after you get kicked out of school, right? Torrance, and you just flounder around for a few years.
2: For well, I went back and moved in with my parents, and um, do you
0: get along with them?
2: Um, at that time, I wasn't very close to them. Yeah. And, um, but they kinda, they definitely helped save my life because I had a, I don't know what it would be called, but in a period of depression, um, I just, I was working in a medical office taking, uh, like as an operator and just taking phone calls from people who weren't getting the benefits they needed, yeah. who were super sick and having to transfer them to someone who I knew was gonna tell them pretty much tough luck. And it was a little windowless room and I just that with my already existing depression one day, I just started crying. Nothing had happened. I just started crying and I went home and I never went back, I didn't call him or anything. I just went home and I cried that whole night until I fell asleep and then the whole next day and I didn't know why and I didn't know what was happening. No trigger? I don't remember anything unusual happening and then My parents were very scared, I was living with them. And my mom asked, I just remember going out to the kitchen to get a glass of water or something and my mom's saying, what's wrong? Because I was crying and I said, I don't know. And then the next day they were like, you have to go see a therapist immediately. My mom's older sister had committed suicide when she was um, an adult. yeah, And I think that she was scared. And so that's when I met my therapist. It was like their insistence that I go and I met this great woman who's changed my life. Um, you know, you have to work at it too. It's both together working, but she's like um, a great person. I'm really lucky that I yeah. that I met her. And uh,
0: So mostly like after college you were just sort of home trying to get your shit together.
2: Yeah, and then Uh, when I started going to therapy, there was a period where I became very angry at my parents and it was very visible and they were like, well, you should probably get your own place. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then it was just a few years of working like waitressing, pizza delivery, office jobs. In LA
0: or in Torrance?
2: In LA, yeah. yeah. my, My twin had moved up to LA and so I moved near her. Was she
0: in show business? No. Did she like you moving near her?
2: Yeah, we were pretty, um, we fought a lot, but we were also very attached, Yeah, you know, so I lived a few blocks from where she lived. And then in that neighborhood was this place called Pedersen's, which was a coffee shop. Yeah, And they had, Vance Sanders had a, every Tuesday night had a comedy open mic, and Mm. that's where I started going right before I turned 30, and I met Zach and Tig and... Maria Bamford, Jackie Cation, like a bunch of people that- and Before that, you
0: went to Austin?
2: Yes, yeah. That was two years before I went to Austin is when really? I started that. Yeah. What,
0: what year are we- So that's like-
2: 98 was when I started going so it to it seems like, up.
0: like Zach would have just gotten out here Yeah. right? Yeah, And Tig, I don't really know her history. And who was the other one? Oh, Bamford.
2: Bamford. She
0: must not have been out. Well, maybe she was out here for a while, but like that was- that was just post-alt-comedy, kind of. That was the yeah. beginning of it. Yeah. Right?
2: Yeah. And uh, And that's was...
0: really the first time, after you'd gone up once or twice a year at the Laugh Factory, mm-hmm. that you came upon this place.
2: Yeah, because my sister worked there. Oh. And so I would visit her sometimes at work, and I noticed, like, they're having comedy on Tuesday nights. So I started going just to watch. Yeah. And was very excited by how many funny people were there and intimidated, too. Yeah. But, like, they just were um, different. They weren't... In, in comedy clubs, sometimes it seemed like, at least at the Laugh Factory, it seemed like the audience responds much more to your confidence than your material. It, I mean, they want good material, right. too, but you have to...
0: Right, there's not a lot of, they don't indulge you that much. You better deliver something.
2: Yeah, and um, when the whole audience is mostly comedians, they want material that's different from anything they've heard before, more than attitude. Right. And that's a great place to start, because it makes you work hard on writing stuff that's unique to you.
0: So you started doing it.
2: Yeah, and I started drinking before I went. That was the other key I didn't do that at Laugh Factory, <laughs> yeah. but I figured out at Pedersen's. I'll drink before I go up, and then um, my stage fright was mostly gone. It worked. Yeah.
0: And you, you know, you you struck. You're highly structured with your jokes. You're not. You don't yeah. riff a lot. Yeah,
2: I don't. I I. Sometimes I will think maybe I could. <laughs> <laughs> And then every time like, nope, don't riff, not good at it. I'm really, really bad at it. Ugh. It's painful,
0: but I remember like so this is ninety eight and you started doing it uh you know at least weekly, getting getting a little buzz on and doing your jokes, you know in front of a room full of of uh you, you know a new generation of comics that right. thought differently about comics, right and you had a little peer group there, yeah. But I remember like you did see I had this idea, I don't know why. Did you do Letterman? No. You did Conan.
2: I did Conan
0: at, at NBC though, right?
2: Uh yes. And right. then um yeah. I the year before the year that Letterman announced he was retiring. Yeah. Um the comedy booker emailed me asking if I would want to submit a set and I was at a really bad place. That was two thousand 13 and or 14, but I was like 50 pounds overweight, out of control eating disorder, really just barely holding on to sobriety, really depressed. It was like Letterman was the biggest deal to me. I would have that, would have been, I he was my one of my idols, but like I can't even attempt to go on TV when I feel like Job of the Hut. So it was like I waited a year before I even tried to get a set. Yeah. And then he had announced he was retiring, and, and there that was, was
0: hard to get a set.
2: No, I'm not saying I would have even if he no, no, hadn't. No, yeah, was... I know. that last year was. But it, I, yeah, it just. Yeah. I, but, but I love him. Yeah, love he,
0: him. I did too. Yeah, he's not dead. He's just out.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, um. But no, I for some reason I had it in my head. That, you know, the mythology of Martha Kelly was that, you know, you, you, you'd you done comedy, you did Conan, and then for some reason, I decided that you disappeared entirely.
2: Well, I kind of did when I quit drinking. For a couple years, I didn't do stand-up at all. Oh, hardly. that must be
0: it. So let's go. So when do you decide, and why do you decide to move to Austin from here?
2: Well, it's a little um, embarrassing of a rationale, but... Um, a lot of it was drinking. I just didn't know it. But um, after doing stand-up for almost two years. Here, I, at here, here, in my kind of entitled opinion, I wasn't progressing as much as I thought I should be here. Yeah. And I couldn't get any auditions for like Aspen or Montreal. You didn't and, have
0: any representation.
2: No, and, um, and I just now like, knowing at 2 years of doing stand up that's really very very short amount of time to be doing sure. stand up but i just felt like hey this is gonna, i've been doing this for a while now i should get to go to festivals or get get stuff you know and i couldn't get a you couldn't get showcases here without a manager right so but in other cities aspen was holding these open call auditions yeah I was like, oh, I'll just get in the back door. I'll go to fly to one of those cities. <laughs> right. And um, Austin was having one, and my friend Laura House.
0: Sure, I know her.
2: She lived, used to live there, and so I asked her what she thought. She was like, yeah, and I, she, was, she was gonna be there that same week for the Austin Film Festival, Yeah. and then she had a couple friends that she was gonna stay with, and she asked them if I could stay with them. And we all, it was two guys, Ray Pruitt and Colby Turner, who uh-huh. I still love to death, but we stayed with them. Like, they let me stay with them. I was a complete stranger. Yeah. And um, they were really welcoming. Comics? Uh, no. Um, Ray was like, did some sketch and improv stuff yeah. and acting, but he wasn't a stand-up. And Colby worked in computers. Yeah. But they had gone to college together. And um, we just drank and had a great time, and the audition was the process was fun. I didn't make it to Aspen, but I had a lot of fun and was really excited by the Austin community, the comedians that I met, and everyone drank for real. Like it, to me, what it felt like out here, and I still think this might be true when performers go to parties in L.A. and drink. They still try to keep a uh, professional, like no one's just like, fuck it, let's get wasted. Because (laughs) you don't know if someone you might want to work with is at the party. Right. Um, But in Texas, people are, (laughs) it's about (laughs) having as good of a time as you can. Not going to
0: run into anybody that you might want to work with in Texas, necessarily.
2: Yeah, there's no industry there. And there's... uh, Plenty of, different. plenty of booze. <laughs> plenty of booze. and
0: uh, So this is like 2001?
2: This was um, the end of 99. So I started doing stand-up at Pedersen's in January of 98, and then October, the end of almost two years later, October of 99, I went to Austin. I loved it. I also had a crush on Colby. I was like... A lot of alcoholics are like, hey, I should just move to this place because yeah. I had a good weekend there yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and I did and- uh, How'd it go? Um, for overall, I'm really glad I did it because um, some really fun things happened with comedy there and I think that I my drinking accelerated at, at such a rapid pace that I ended up getting sober Earlier than I might have if I'd been able to control it longer. Did I
0: run into you in Austin ever?
2: I know we had met before, but I saw you once when you did this show, this podcast live during um, South by Southwest a few Didn't years ago. Did you do ago. it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, you were with, on the podcast.
2: Yeah, with Lucas. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, you know, I always knew you were sort of around, but you, were you living in Austin when we did that podcast? No.
2: Yes. So I moved there in. The beginning of 2000. Yeah. Moved back here at the very end of 2003. Uh, Why? Um, Because um, I was, my life was going down the toilet because of my drinking. Like I was months behind in rent. I was hardly doing stand-up. Um, what were
0: you drinking? What was your drink? Just beer?
2: Miller Lite.
0: Really? Yeah. So, so that was so, if you're like a serious beer drunk, your apartment probably was pretty ugly
2: yeah a lot of bottles I had four cats and a dog <laughs> yeah, and just it was I was just living not functioning right really. like a
0: case a day
2: no, because I have a low tolerance for alcohol, so I could get um a very I could get very drunk on six beers
0: uh-huh. um six pack a day,
2: yeah, and maybe and then towards the end like between six and eight, you know. Yeah, Unless you're drinking natural light beer, in which case it's, you can drink it all night and not yeah. get too drunk, but mostly Miller Lite. And then my parents, I kept borrowing money from them. I, I got fired. I lost weeks at comedy clubs on the road because they had heard that I was shitty because I would get drunk before I performed. And um. I mean, that's not the only reason I also would bomb a lot of times on the road, even if I wasn't drunk. Yeah, Um,
0: we have a very specific thing. You know, your energy is what it is. It's not going to shift,
2: right? Not (laughs) even if there's an emergency. It's still (laughs) (laughs) pretty much the same. Did Um, you
0: were were you working? What were you working? Is a feature? Yeah, and that started to crumble.
2: Yeah, and so my parents finally, uncharacteristically. Said we will if you move back to California, we and and if you agree to go to counseling with us because of your money problems. They didn't know I had a drinking problem, and I didn't wasn't uh, aware of my drinking. And that, you're in your thirties. You yeah, I was um thirty five.
0: So this is not. It's embarrassing.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, but also just being in denial. Like I drink, um, you know several light beers a night I don't drink during the day I've never had a DUI all the reasons alcoholics yeah well you'll find whatever evidence you need to you know so um they said they would give me three months they'd help me move into a place of my own out here and pay for three months of rent and groceries if I would go to counseling with them
0: and you weren't feeling depressed
2: I was but I just thought it was because uh life was really unfair. I didn't connect it. I I thought I should drink less but I thought I'm not an alcoholic, so my options are really I have to be the one to control it. Yeah. And um and then moving out here thinking, well I'll go back to drinking like I did in ninety nine when I left.
0: Which was what, three beers?
2: Um yeah, I mean I would go to I would go out and I would drink Two to three beers as fast as I could, and not eat dinner. Yeah, have a great buzz, and then within a couple hours, it wears off enough to kind of safely drive home. Yeah, and that's mostly what I was doing.
0: Yeah, you're a good planner.
2: Yeah, I'm very
0: <laughs>
2: afraid to let go. And you don't of control,
0: and you don't have alcoholism in your family.
2: Yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, you
0: grew up with it.
2: Yes, and. um so you're here. Then I moved three back, months. and within two and a half months of being back, I was my drink my drinking accelerated again so quickly and was so much worse even than when I left Austin. That that's when December twentieth of two thousand three is when I was like, I can't drink anymore. I w- I still didn't know if I was an alcoholic. I thought I probably wasn't an alcoholic, but I just it hit me like, for years, I either don't drink at all, or I get drunk every night. I've not been able to moder- be moderate. But you grew up with it. Right. You knew what it looked like. Uh, Yeah, and my twin sister had been in rehab, and so, but my idea of people with a problem was people whose behavior while under the influence hurt other people, and when I drank, I wasn't that different from how I am right now. Yeah. Um. I as I said earlier, I had some relationship problems that were similar to people with borderline. Yeah. And so I did hurt people what but it wasn't while drunk. It was yeah. just in life, you know.
0: Sure. Well, who was alcoholic in your house?
2: Uh, my dad.
0: Yeah. So your your model for it was like if I'm not being emotionally abusive Right. Or while or... drunk.
2: If I'm not having blackouts and yelling at people right. If I don't have a DUI, if no one in my life is telling me, you need um, to slow down. It's not a problem. But if you have um, similar personality to borderline, then you don't have anyone close enough to tell you your drinking bothers them. So that was sort of a facilitator. <laughs> sure. You know, and all, and all the friends I had that I wasn't super close to, they all drank too. Right. You know.
0: And and when you're drinking with other people drinking no one thinks you're an alcoholic until one falls off. Right. And you're like, "Nah, I didn't think it was that bad." Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people told me, "Oh, I, you didn't drink that much." Yeah. I was like, "I'm just a low functioning alcoholic and with the depression, yeah. it made it even harder to function, but the good thing is the depression probably helped me get sober sooner."
0: So so once you got back here and your folks are helping you out and the drinking escalates and you just hit that wall, then that's when you got sober? Yes. And you stayed yeah. sober?
2: Uh yeah, I've been I just um celebrate is a is a strong term, but I just uh, marked thirteen years of sobriety. Congratulations. In Thanks.
0: Yeah. It's
2: It's the only, (laughs) it's my only alternative if I want to have any kind of life. So I'm really happy. Even though I'm not, I don't sound happy, I am happy to be sober. It was hard in the beginning. I didn't like it at all.
0: Yeah. I got, I have 17 years and like, yeah, the first five years are, you know, it's crazy.
2: Yeah. And you don't
0: know, you don't know what to do with yourself.
2: Yeah. It's so uncomfortable to be around people, even people in, um,
0: yeah, in the secret meetings. In the
2: secret meetings. Yeah. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah that's the worst at the beginning. Yeah. I used to yell and scream, and I'm very dramatic, and I just made my life complete chaos.
2: Yeah. You don't
0: seem like the type for that.
2: Uh, n- not, no, but my life w- remained in the toilet for a while, into sobriety, cause I, partly because I had the untreated depression. So I still, even though I wasn't hungover, I still was barely working. I was a internet copywriter a search engine optimization is what they called it copywriter where you just write a hundred pages using the same keywords over and over to try and boost web traffic the the search engines have gotten so sophisticated that that job doesn't exist anymore yeah but back in the early 2000s but I was so depressed I was hardly working and I moved back in with my parents at almost a year sober yeah. But that ended up being good too, because um that's where I met the group of people that became the group that helped me come to life again secret yeah. secret meetings, yeah, you know,
0: sure, you found one,
2: and then a couple years later, my um niece and nephew were born, and my parents, who I was living with became their daycare when their mom went back to work. Your sister, no, my brother, uh-huh, and um. The the couple years when they were babies and I was seeing them every day all day were like some of the sweetest, most fun. I didn't think it would be. I wasn't happy to find out there's going to be a baby in the house right. every day. <laughs> yeah. And then really quickly was like, oh my god, no one. I had no idea how fun babies are and how <laughs> s- and probably because of the age I was, like I think it just activated that biological instinct that. Yeah not all women have and some men have it or a lot of men have it but I definitely have it I just didn't know until I was forced to be with a baby and I was like this is the best (laughs) this is like what this is really literally what I was made for I mean just
0: so now you're the cool aunt huh
2: I don't think they think I'm cool but I am taking them to Disneyland next (laughs) weekend so I'm working on it but they definitely even after how old are they Um, They just turned nine and 10. The girl is 10, the Uh boy is nine. And um, yeah, even that, I hardly told anybody about baskets because I am self conscious and. Afraid I was going to be terrible. So I didn't go around telling my friends and family, hey, this show's coming out. Yeah. But I did tell my niece and nephew because I wanted to impress them and they (laughs) couldn't give less of a shit.
0: (laughs) That's who you chose to tell?
2: (laughs) Yeah, and they don't care at all. They've seen the show, which I told my brother, don't let them watch it anymore. It's not a kid's show. Yeah. Um, Because when I came back to visit after... One of the times after the whole season had ended and they'd seen it, my nephew, the first thing he said to me was, did you really have sex with that guy in the van? <laughs> Why are you letting them watch? This isn't appropriate. But
0: So, all right. But then, okay. So you didn't, you didn't think it was panning out quite right. So you go back to Austin and then you enter another different type of addictive hell.
2: Then my eating disorder. Was that new? Uh, Other no. than not eating
0: and just drinking beer?
2: Um, no. In early sobriety, I just, I gained a lot of weight, and then I joined That's a, not
0: unusual, though.
2: Right. But for me, it takes over everything. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there are people who drank more than I do whose, whose lives are not in the toilet and who eat more and weigh more, but they're not, their whole life doesn't revolve around Sure. when can I get rid of all these- you know my my parents go to bed or leave yeah. my friends and go home and eat in secret yeah um and i joined a secret group that was very rigid and yeah. i and i was really hungry all the time cuz we hardly eat anything yeah and lost a bunch of weight but was even more crazy about great scale uh similar yeah, yeah. yeah in that family yeah and then um and then left it and then i moved to austin it was like I bet I can eat sugar again in a different <laughs> state. <laughs> I can control it, I'm sure. And then like 50 pounds later, wow. fin- finally went back, came back here, um, went off my antidepressants for a while because I read...
0: <laughs> Wait, when did you get on those? We didn't cover that. How long in sobriety?
2: Um, I'd been a little over, I think, four years sober. And
0: then you started taking them because...
2: Because again, my parents kind of did a bit of an intervention because I was living with them and they had seen me. I thought if I lose weight, that'll make me happy and it didn't yeah. and um, I just was like not really living and didn't realize it yeah. and my mom, who um, just a heads up passed away um, about three weeks ago. Sorry. Um, thanks, she, but she so she's on my mind a lot, of yeah. course, and that was another time where she was the one who was like, you need to go and get help, you're not living, and um, so I did. But then a few years later after um, just becoming like an all-night binger, sleep all day in Austin. Food? Yeah.
0: You, what is, how does one binge all night on food?
2: you go to a convenience store hopefully you go to different ones every day so yeah. the clerks don't know how much you're eating uh-huh and then get a bunch of candy and cookies and chips and a video from Redbox that's what i would do yeah go back to your apartment and just kind of surround yourself with the food and eat and watch tea- watch a video until the sun came up a lot of times just um it, once it got into a cycle that kind of started with my dog dying um, of a really aggressive cancer. Yeah. And then my mom almost dying. These are both in 2012. Yeah. She went in the hospital. And that started this anxiety and, and insomnia that I'd never had before. And that... Merged with the um, binging on sugar and stuff, and I just I'd gotten to a cycle where I would just stay up all night eating and watching videos, and then sleep all day, and then get up and do it again, and couldn't stop, and didn't know what was wrong with me, you know.
0: And he just kept putting on weight.
2: Yeah, because um, candy and cookies and pizza and hamburgers are mm, packed yeah. with calories, right? Yeah. Um,
0: So, so, okay, so that's what that looks like. So when you went off your antidepressants, that's what happened. That's how you medicated yourself.
2: Well, I was still on antidepressants for 2012 and then um, got evicted and my car got repossessed because, again, I wasn't working. I had an online job where you set your own hours, so I just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And got kicked out of my apartment, moved back in with my parents out here. 50 pounds heavier. yeah. Well, maybe around 40. And then yeah. once I started going to a, a more, what I think is a more practical secret group for compulsive eaters, yeah. um, for a while I I continued to gain weight after going there. Um, so in the end, it was probably like, when Zach called me about the pilot for baskets, I was like 50 pounds overweight. And was like, there's no way I can do this, you know?
0: But when, when he called you, so we're up to, like, what, 2015? 2000,
2: he called me January of 2014. Out of nowhere? Out of nowhere. Like I'd seen him. I moved back here in January of 2013, and I'd seen him twice, I think, that year, once at Largo, once when he was doing the Oscar Between Two Ferns edition. Yeah. And then I hadn't seen him, and then he just called, left me a message in January of 2014 saying, I'm going to do this show... Want to see if you want to be a part on it. You probably don't want to do it, but just call me if you do. And, yeah.
0: And you called him and said, I can't?
2: Uh, I said, I can't act. And he said, you don't have to. You just say the lines the way you would if it were you in real life. (laughs) And I still thought I'm just going to freeze and get fired. But, (laughs) But I also, because Zach was so... He's like, even though he's a couple years younger than me, he is like a big brother in our relationship where he made me feel like I could try it. And at worst, if he had to fire me, I knew he would do it as nicely as he could. yeah. And he wouldn't make me feel like I'd let him down even though I thought that's what's gonna happen. Right, You know, yeah. Um,
0: But you you said initially that you couldn't do it because you felt like you were
2: too heavy? Well, I didn't, I thought he called me in January. He said we'd shoot the pilot in May. And so I thought that's enough time to lose 50 pounds, (laughs) (laughs) which it wasn't. I didn't even become abstinent from compulsive eating in this other group until like a month before we started shooting. But because I had started that, I knew like I'm on my way to getting back to a normal weight and, and I'm able to participate in what's going on instead of thinking when can I sneak off to craft services and who's noticing how much I'm eating that kind of stuff yeah um
0: so it was really grounding for you
2: it was yeah and it was really fun and then when I saw it and saw how big I was I was not happy but I was like you know if they get if we get to a full season I'll be farther along by that time and I'll just keep working towards it and TV shows are not the most important thing in life. Like being a healthy, fairly happy person is what what matters. So and, now you know.
0: But so, but the food, how? Because you know, I I have weird issues around body image and food because my mother had eating disorder, still does, but you know, she manages. She's but she goes the other way, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But she's a compulsive eater. But like, what I meant was like you know when you're on set and stuff there's something exciting about craft services
2: yeah very exciting and like
0: you know
2: <laughs> it's like and, a free convenience store
0: and you know it's there yeah and you try to manage you know but like it's it 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 almost becomes like there were times where I, where I was on set both for my show and the show I shot before where where I was like you know like like as soon as you hear like there's pizza there or mm-hmm. something that moment where you're like come on let's just get the scene done so. Right, can have pizza. Or
2: yeah, I mean, what's that, out
0: there? I always have yeah. this thing where I'm afraid the food's going to run out. Right. Do you ever get that?
2: Yes. It's yeah. the
0: worst. I I have that. And there's no. It's not going to. There's right.
2: no. But yeah, if, I if I wasn't in recovery and not just I don't eat sugar and flour at all. Uh-huh. If I wasn't doing that, I wouldn't have been able to concentrate on anything because there's an actual truck full of delicious junk food every all day every day yeah and then they get snacks on top of that and then meals on top of that yeah and like yeah so it would have been full meals yeah it would have been i couldn't have i would have been probably fired if i had been in the food as they call it because i that's all i would have cared about yeah
0: It's it's so powerful and people don't realize it
2: yeah I mean, but again, like there are people who eat pizza all the time and are, by doctor's uh, standards, may be o- overweight, but they're happy and their lives don't revolve around the pizza. They just like to eat it and don't care that, I know those, you know. I,
0: I, people that don't have compulsive problems around things, like, like I envy them and like but there's nothing, you know, what are we gonna do? Well, Make them I, feel bad? <laughs>
2: I feel like um, because you kind of have to have some kind of faith of some kind to be in any kind of recovery, Um, you can be atheist or agnostic and just put your faith in the group, Yeah, but you have to have some kind of faith in something outside yourself. That improves my quality of life. That alone, not thinking everything's up to me, makes me a lot happier.
0: To uh to get rid of some of that control,
2: yeah, and the idea of control. I don't know if I ever would have gotten that if I didn't have addiction. Sure. So that that's one positive thing about it. Yeah, there's a lot of
0: positive things about it. And so, so the second season is starting now. Um, it it
2: starts. The the second second season starts on the nineteenth.
0: So you shot it all.
2: We shot it all,
0: and it's all in the can.
2: It's all almost in the can. Oh really? They're still doing editing on some of the later oh, right. episodes because we wrapped November thirtieth.
0: Okay, so now, so you do the first season, and you're, are you in every episode?
2: A little bit in every episode, and then more in it in some of them.
0: Yeah, and the second one too. Yeah, and you're funny.
2: I don't know. It's I watch, I don't see what anyone else sees if they like it. Sure. I really oh, yeah, don't.
0: I, I understand what you're saying, but but people. Do like it. it's an interesting show. It's odd. You uh, you show up for yourself very well. You know, you, did you get more comfortable, you know, as time went on, or I mean, do I, you like doing it?
2: I love doing it. Um, I love being spending all day with Zach and Jonathan Kreisel and the and Louie and the the crew like. Like, you get to spend all day with really nice people. Yeah. And if you're one of the actors, everyone treats you like you're precious. Yeah. So, it's hard not to enjoy everyone treating you like they think you're <laughs> terrific. <laughs> uh, even though you know that's part of what they have to do, because some actors are dicks, and if you have to pretend to like them, no matter what, I think.
0: Yeah. I
2: guess. I've yeah. never been on another right. show. but yeah. um. But by the end of the first season I felt like we'd all had time to really get to know each other.
0: So Louis producing, Zach created it and is doing so a lot of the writing?
2: Um Zach is goes is part of the writer's room, yeah. but um it's him, Jonathan Kreisel, who's a who's the director, yeah. showrunner. And then they had I think three or four other writers. Yeah. Who I love.
0: And Louis Anderson is amazing. Yeah. He was here. He won an Emmy. Yeah, and, and
2: he's he's amazing. Yeah. He's really great.
0: He's sweetheart, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, he has a good heart. Yeah. And he, from the very first time I met him on the pilot, he just treated me like a coworker. When I was very intimidated to work with him, because yeah. he also improvs a lot, and he's great at it. Yeah. And I freeze when... <laughs> when <laughs> they go off script, and he never made me feel like a dummy, even though I was and still am a dummy a lot of times, but he's always well, been You don't, really nice. Well, you,
0: you've, you've known for a long time you're not a riffer.
2: Yeah, I'm not, I can't, i pan- <laughs> one, On the pilot, one of the times that Louis, I'd never done anything like this before, Louis started riffing. I He asked me, in character asked me a question and I couldn't think of anything to say. So there was just a long pause and then I yelled cut. And then they laughed but they were also like, you can't yell cut. <laughs> Only the director can say cut. But I just panicked. <laughs> it's so.
0: But it seems like Zach knew exactly what you were gonna do with this part and that it is it is you. So whatever you're bringing to it and your discomfort is is working for the show.
2: I think the writers and Jonathan um m- like make it they they make it work, really. They sure. they make they make it seem like I'm doing something when really I really I I meant to do more this season because for season one all all I could think to do is just always know my lines when I show up so I'm not bumming anyone out by making it a longer day and then be nice to everybody. Yeah. And then do whatever they ask me to do. Right. Um and then it occurred to me because of a few times getting direction about like you're supposed to be feeling something <laughs> Like, okay, season two, I'm going to think about the scenes and what I'm supposed to be feeling, but th- this is not um, to be a bummer, but r- the first day we filmed, my mom had just gone back into the hospital, and that's when I found out she was dying. For season two. Yeah, yeah. so um, I didn't do anything more than just learn my lines again and try to be nice to everybody and do whatever they asked me to do. And But that's why I feel like really... Um, it's the people I work with that made it seem like anything, like I was doing anything. Well, I wouldn't know what to do. I I wouldn't know what to do without them.
0: Of course, but I I mean I I think you you don't give yourself enough credit. You're a little hard on yourself, and you know you are very specific, and you do have something that you do naturally that is working in the show.
2: I I I'm glad that they. I'm really glad that they have me on it. But I honestly, like I'm coming from a history of periods of feeling entitled for no reason. Entitled to stuff. Entitled to... Well, now
0: it's like you're working.
2: Yeah, but I don't want to go back into thinking, oh, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm the reason this is happening. Because when I do that, I will very shortly go into, well, where's my fucking everything else? I want everything. You know, and that's, yeah. I kind of still...
0: Right, you got to find a a middle zone. I'm
2: much happier feeling like I found, like one time I found $20 on the sidewalk and it made me way happier than any I've ever earned. (laughs) I've had $20 an hour jobs. I never felt that happy. (laughs) But when you, so feeling like, I know that Zach, Zach has never made me feel like he's doing me a favor. He always makes it seem like I'm doing him a favor because he's a dear person, you know? But I'm way happier feeling like I stumbled into a lottery, yeah. you know? And it's made my life better for a lot of reasons, not just professionally, but it, it is the sole reason I have anything going on right now with stand-up or anything, yeah. you know? I didn't. I wouldn't know my manager if it wasn't for baskets, and she helps me a lot. But I would never have even met her, you know. Yeah. So um, I understand.
0: So you yeah. you feel like you got lucky?
2: I'm super lucky, but I'm lucky. Like I was lucky when I met my therapist in my twenties. When sure. I found my home group of the secret meetings, yeah. and I'm a very lucky person.
0: Well, yeah, and you but know? you know, you've you, you know, you've had a. a a rough go at life, and and somehow or another, you know, you did choose comedy. You know, it's not some freak thing that you know. It's not. It's lucky to a certain degree, but you know, somewhere in the midst of all this darkness and you know, beer and food, you decided <laughs> that
1: <laughs>
2: your
0: <laughs> your salvation was comedy. Somehow, you know that yeah. you know that's not nothing to, to choose to do comedy. I mean, I know a lot of us are uh, neurotic or compulsive or depressive or whatever, angry. But we do choose this ridiculous profession to go up there in front of strangers and, and you know, make ourselves vulnerable, even though we may not think we're doing that. You know, we're all alone yeah. up there. It's a very terrifying thing to most mortals. Yeah. And you do it. You chose that. Do you ever think back as to why? Why did you choose that given your particular demeanor and 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 brain
2: i remember i think well really quick i do want to say about depression i'm on a new and better and super cheap because it's a really old one and it's changed my life i just want to say that because sometimes people have depression and they get the wrong antidepressant and then they feel like there's no hope right but it took me a while but there is hope i just want to say that for anyone listening who has depression but um when I was in at Davis, yeah, close to getting kicked out and feeling like I don't want to do anything, I don't care about anything, not knowing that was depression. But, but you
0: were suicidal?
2: Yeah, I would be periodically feel suicidal. And I just one day was thinking like, what would I do if I could do anything I wanted? Not thinking I can do it, yeah. but what would I want to do? And just remembering in high school, senior year, being in the school play that was a comedy and having a h- hugely fun time also because the after parties had beer and pot and but but just that was the only good time I had in high school yeah. was doing that and I realized like I loved that feeling so um that's what I want to do and I don't know how I'm going to do it but I'll try to
0: get that find feeling find way
2: back to that yeah
0: the feeling of well, community has been something, but the feeling of making people laugh—it's
2: so unlike anything else in the world. To do stand-up when it goes well, and when it doesn't go well, it's also not like anything. It's the pain, unlike <laughs> any.
0: Yeah, it's all on you. Yeah,
2: yeah, and they and you can you can. Some people are really good at being like, oh, this crowd, I'm just not their cup of tea. No big deal. It's just another show. But I always feel like these people hate me because I'm garbage and it sucks, you know? But when it goes well, it feels so good that it's worth that risk, you know? Sure. You still don't know how anything's gonna be received or if there's gonna be another season or if when Baskets ends, it's totally possible in this industry that everything could dry up all at once and I could have to get another $20 an hour day job but I feel like
0: or you could just walk around hoping you find $20
2: walk around however far it takes to find that magic 20 (laughs) that magical 20 but yeah just I probably when that happens we'll move back to Austin just because it's a little cheaper and I and I love that
0: well, let's not make plans yeah. about when everything falls apart.
2: I just always feel like it's pr- everything probably will fall apart. That just is my assumption and whatever. I'm much happier when I'm not living in an com- obsessive-compulsive spiral. Sure,
0: of one I- kind or another.
2: I'd rather be free no matter what effort I have to put into it. And it still is relatively little effort. It's not like... You have to, it's not like going to the gym every day to be yeah. in recovery. It's just not that much, it's not that hard if you do it consistently, you That's know? true,
0: that's true. You go in the gym?
2: No, but I'm I'm working up the nerve to try Bikram yoga again, because it's the only, um, uh, what do you call it? It's the only, ex- not extreme, but strenuous exercise I ever really liked. Yeah. So I'm... Working up the nerve All right. to try it well, again because it's kind of it's kind of unpleasant at first because it's really hot.
0: Right, that's the whole idea. Yeah. Maybe you should do a couple of regular yoga classes and then go to the.
2: I don't. I just feel like regular yoga is a waste of time because it doesn't hurt. It doesn't. Yeah, no,
0: I agree. Yeah. I always kind of hurt myself.
2: That's what I'm a little afraid of because I'm 48, and when I did it before, I was like early 40s. Yeah. Um, but I am going to continue to age until I die, so I may as well start somewhere. Yeah, I think know?
0: that's probably a good reason to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> it, just to, it, it, proactive anyways.
2: Just, yeah, because the more you take care of yourself while you still can, the less bed-bound you are at, in old age, I think.
0: Sure, and Ooh, um, This is a
2: fun way to end. I can tell great. we're getting close to
0: <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's nice. It was and- a, a very uplifting practical <laughs> end.
2: <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> um and we'll now we'll we'll I'll I'll try to gossip with you off mic.
2: Yeah, I love Hollywood gossip I and I
0: I don't have a lot. I'm out i don't have one. any. I'm what out I've, of the loop.
2: Whatever you have will be more than what I have.
0: I'm out of the loop. But I, I will I will tell you um I'll tell you what I know.
2: Okay, that sounds great. Thanks, Martha. (laughs) Thanks, Mark.
0: All right, that was Martha. Watch uh, Baskets tonight, every Thursday night. And now I'm going to play guitar and give you a little something else with that.
3: People ask me, what's... What's the thing you've learned most as yeah, president? Right, and I, I tell him I don't know that this is something I learned, but it is something that has been confirmed. The American people are overwhelmingly good, decent, generous people, and and I I can say that because I meet a lot of people. You see folks from all walks of life. Yeah. You don't just you don't just talk to your supporters. You you meet people who don't like you, didn't vote for you and everybody that i meet believes in a lot of the same things. They they believe in honesty and family and mm-hmm. uh, community and and looking out for one another. So the issue is not the american people. That's where my faith is. The the question is how do we build institutions and connections that allow the goodness, decency, common sense of ordinary folks to express itself in the decisions that are made about how the country moves forward. You know, when you wake up every day, you say to yourself, are things a little bit better? Yeah. And if you if you take that long view, then you're less nervous or stressed about the day-to-day ups and downs and you kind of just start blocking that stuff out because you're staying focused on uh, your ultimate destination you can just
0: block it out obviously I,
3: you have I, to I, I have learned not to worry about the day-to-day and to stay focused on what I need to do uh, for the American people long term and and now look some of it's temperament I always say uh, part of this is just being born in Hawaii it's really
0: nice I was and, just there
3: and, 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 in Hawaii. yeah you feel better uh, yeah, I did, right. like So, it. so I I feel like that fortified me, <laughs> so that I just you know there's a certain element of chill. That, you got a Hawaii in uh, the you mind. Got, you got a little Hawaii in the mind. I guess the last thing is you lose you lose fear. Part of that fearlessness is because you've screwed up enough times sure that you know that it's all it's, happened it's it's all happened I've, I've been through this right I've, I've screwed up right I've, I've been in the barrel tumbling down Niagara Falls yeah and uh, and you, you know, I emerged and I lived and and that's always a, uh, that's such a liberating feeling absolutely right yeah. it's one of the benefits of uh, of age it almost compensates for the fact that I can't play basketball anymore oh <laughs> well, good